Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect Magazine, and today I'm joined by Contributing Editor Tom Clark and former Number 10 Advisor, current House of Lords Labour peer Stuart Wood. Today we'll be discussing what the Labour Party could learn from progressive governments around the world. That's something that Tom investigated for the cover story of the current issue of Prospect, It's a piece called 12 Ideas for Keir Starmer, How Labour Could Win the Next Election. And in it, Tom argues that the Labour Party is short of a few good policy ideas, but could be inspired by some or all of the 12 tried and tested policies he's pulled out from countries including Finland, Germany and Colombia. We've invited Stuart along to take a look at Tom's suggestions and to evaluate whether they could work for today's Labour Party. Stewart was, of course, a special advisor to Gordon Brown in the Treasury from 2001 to 2007 and in Number 10 when he was Prime Minister. He was also later on Head of Communications for Ed Miliband's leadership bid, so we reckoned he would know a thing or two about the party and also how to run a campaign. Thanks very much for joining us, Tom and Stuart. Hello. Pleasure. Hi there. So first of all, Tom, before we get into the all-important ideas, arguably that's the really fun bit, I wanted to drill into why you felt it was important to set out these ideas at all. You are quite hopeful at the outset of the piece, saying that the tide of democratic politics worldwide is running in a progressive direction. Not everybody looking at the Tory leadership contest might agree with you. So why did you feel optimistic about the chance of seeing a progressive government in number 10? Well, I mean, I actually, to be fair and to be, you know, decently modest, I think it was yourself or Alan or someone else at Prospect who said, like, it all feels like doom and gloom here. But when you look around the world at the pattern of election results, it really doesn't look that way. It looks more like we're the kind of exception at the moment. And, you know, there's lots of Latin American countries like Chile and Colombia that look to be going to the left as well as the more familiar, we know that America's kind of, you know, went left in its last electoral cycle, also Germany, and uh, also uh, all of the um, Scandinavian countries are now back with the centre-left. And it sort of feels like, you know, despite the the doom and gloom in Britain, that, that Britain stands out as the exception. And yet, it kind of feels like Keir Starmer is running a profoundly pessimistic 
operation. And this isn't a right-left point. Tony Blair came in as very clearly, a, from from where I'm sat, looked like the most right-wing, uh, openly kind of pro-market, kind of pro-consumerist Labour leader that, that, that Labour had ever had in the 1990s. And yet it was a kind of optimistic operation, not a defensive one. It was like, right, OK, we'll, we'll bag this from Thatcherism and then we'll move on in these ways. Whereas this feels a bit more like, Ooh, the electorate lights some stuff, we don't really know what it means, so we're going to say, what's the new slogan? Security, prosperity, respect, and hope that gets us through until we have to write a manifesto. And so it feels very defensive, and it feels like quite a contrast with, not only with Tony Blair, but also, say, with David Cameron, who was just grabbing around for anything that was out there before he came in. He was like, oh, the spirit level, this book about how equality is really important. We'll have a bit of that. People haven't thought about equality before, you know, as, as he comes in as a, a, a conservative leader with a big agenda of cuts, but he wanted to kind of create a buzz, a sense that he was part of the change and grabbing at whatever was around. Whereas Keir Starmer, I think it's fair to say, would prefer to keep his head down. So that was the kind of spirit, really, of it. It's like, you know, there's optimistic mood music in the world, but there's very kind of downbeat mood music in Labour HQ, as, as, as heard from the outside anyway. And Stuart, way back when, in about 2015, you wrote a piece for us here at Prospect called How Can Labour Be Socially Democratic Without the City? And in that piece, you wrote that progressive change must not simply be a matter of picking our favourite North European country and and copying it wholesale. So what did you make of this exercise in light of, you know, that view that you that you put down on paper a few years ago for us? I think the left is always condemned to be looking to Scandinavia in particular for inspiration. I think that's fine. I think what the point I was trying to make there was that it's easy to say, oh, I like this about Germany, we like this about Sweden. And the response is always, yes, but they're so different all the way down those countries that we can't just import their institutions wholesale. And that's true. And I think that's the that's the point. But I think I think Tom's right. There is a sense that, you know, from Australia to Latin America to old chestnut countries like Spain and Germany, that the left is, if not thriving, at least it's squeaking back in and creating a bit of space to do things that are progressive. And and I think the other thing that should give us encouragement is that the right has been forced to be incredibly de facto progressive with a, with a, with a heavy heart through gnashed teeth because of COVID, because of crisis, you know, cost of living, etc. Who'd have thought that Boris Johnson's would be the largest current spending government of, of the lot you know it's extraordinary outside of wartime so actually all, all these things should give something some encouragement and I think look, it's it's good to show that you I think I think there is energy that comes from leadership in opposition that looks around the world visits places takes ideas back I mean you remember back in back in the day even when I was a, a, a babe relatively speaking uh, Brown and Blair in opposition doing what turns out to have been slightly unlicensed trips to the US to look at welfare to work experiments, the buzz around, you know, in the 90s about looking to Germany and other countries for different ways of organising capitalism. Now, these things, these things aren't the doorstep things. You're not going to go around knocking on doors and say, how about stakeholder capitalism? How about pre-distribution or whatever wonky, wonky prospect article you might be your favourite. But what, what it does show is that you're in the ideas business, that you're planning for government, that you're looking for what, how the world's changed and what if different countries have tried, maybe sometimes failed to do. And that gives energy to a project, I think, which is really important as a part of the taste test of whether a party's ready for, for running power. I, th- I think Tom's broader point about Keir Starmer is a really important one, though. And, and I think the jury's out about 
the extraordinary risk aversion that Keir Starmer has as leader of the opposition, because it could be that he's right. It could be that actually, I mean, the analogy with Blair is, is, is sort of, I mean, which is often made by Keir and his people themselves, obviously, but, but what, what Blair didn't have was a change of leadership two years before an election. He had major all the way through um, since after he became leader. And actually, if, um, if Keir Starmer had produced a bunch of policies by now, just before a big change of leadership of the government, in the midst of huge economic uncertainty, I can almost guarantee you a lot of them would have had to be ripped up again. So I'm not saying that's the reason he didn't do it. I think he didn't do it for another reason, which is that he wants to, to lead based on a character competition with the prime minister, whoever that may be. And I think he wants to wait to the last minute to drop policy. But it turns out that this risk aversion, this incredible tactical approach to being leader of the opposition, it might just be that it's that it has advantages in the, in the kind of last two year stretch of this parliament. I think it, I, I think it it might be right actually in terms of uh, like it will be enough to get you through if Liz, Liz Truss is as kind of shambolic as she looks like she might be and you look like you're a steady hand at the tiller. You know it might it might get you through. But what it won't do is it won't achieve any kind of enthusiasm uh whatsoever particularly from young people particularly from the large number of people who are fed up now because you know the country voted brexit and it feels like the 48 percent didn't count for anything ever since for groups like ethnic minorities who feel like they're written out of a lot of the mainstream scripts now i mean you know compared with the 1990s we are a much older country Keir Starmer is a somewhat older leader than Tony Blair, but he is really like running as if, you know, he's taking charge of an old people's home almost in terms of those values of like, you know, like I say, it's, it's security, prosperity, respect, all with a kind of overarching bit of flag waving as well. So in terms of, you know, Tony Blair, like you could see he was not running a left wing economic policy, like I say, when, when it was the 1990s. But there was enough kind of novelty, enough freshness that meant that quite a lot of, you know, student people who were interested in the world changing in one way or another would, would go along with him. But I can't see youngsters doing that with Keir Starmer now, even though he might turn out, you know, better than we think in government. You know, he would say, I imagine that, like, that, you know, the party tried to get rid of Clem Attlee around the time of the 1945 election because he seemed like a dull a dull figure as well. It's just that like every time there seems to be a choice to say something interesting or something boring, if you go for boring, people are going to feel quite bored by you by the time you get to the election. I wonder whether we've actually got a different model of how to do opposition emerging here, which is, I mean, two things in particular. One is you try and get into power by saying as little as possible, because in an, perhaps because in an age of scepticism about politicians breaking promises and with such huge volatility, you know, politically and economically in the environment that, you, that he'll face if he becomes prime minister you want to keep your powder dry in terms of not having promises you have to break um but i wonder secondly there's a different model of leadership of opposition in the sense that I, what i'm struck with as a slight outsider in the in, in in the way that Keir's team run run the show is they're essentially trying to run a kind of cambridge analytical opposition where they that their strategy is basically micro-targeting voters in different streets in different constituencies with different kinds of messages rather than the big sweep of ideas and here's the 10-point plan for the country sort of way of doing things. I almost think they think that that way of doing politics is a bit old-fashioned and I wonder whether actually the Brexit, the success of the Brexit campaign has bled into the current leadership of the Labour Party thinking that that kind of micro-targeting of messaging 
is a much more effective way of getting just across the line than than broad commitments that you will be held to and costed at and challenged on and all that kind of thing. That's super interesting. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms. And I guess, so, I mean, if we come on to, to Tom's ideas, they are, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, but it feels like those are designed, they're, they're exciting ideas. They're ones that could inspire people and kind of galvanize, you know, support, but they, they're not that micro-targeting. They are kind of these broader brush ideas. So, Tom, before we kind of dig into a couple of them, could you very briefly summarise you know some or if you can do it you know uh succinctly kind of all of them or the you know the most exciting ones of this list of 12 that you set out yeah. in your piece i better open it because it's a few weeks since i jotted this down so i'll just remind myself what was what but i mean i did have in mind consciously as i was doing it i mean both you know, to find stuff that was in practice somewhere in the world or on the way to being in practice somewhere in the world i mean i also thought you know it is true as the last election demonstrated you know Absolutely. Labour does have to pull together a, a really tricky coalition of, you know, students and kind of disgruntled people who didn't go to university in, in the so-called Red Wall. And, you know, and, and, and they don't all want the, want the same thing. And so, like, and as Stuart said, you know, the, the idea of keeping your head down might seem attractive because if the, if the Tories are hated enough that people will vote Labour because they're not the Tories, that might work. But I was thinking, well, what happens if you try to approach the same puzzle, but in a more positive way? So, for example, I looked at this pension idea in Denmark, which is essentially about saying people who've had hard lives working like long years in hard graft, you know, that they get their pension earlier. I also looked at something that's going on in Sweden about maybe bringing the trade unions into the discussion about immigration, where there's always fear that you know that that native workers are being undercut well okay like if the if the unions sound sensible on this let's bring them into that discussion rather than keeping them separate so both of those are if you like kind of red wall um uh kind of policies but then we've got other stuff on climate change on decriminalizing cannabis and so on which would be aimed you know like some would call the campus left and then um we've got kind of some traditional social democratic stuff on social security and on infrastructure which is the stuff that you know i think even now although i'm not as sure as i was a year ago even now keir starmer and probably most labor people think it is the kind of ground that can unite the labor party so it's consciously a mix the idea wasn't that kind of all of these would work or even most of them but rather this is like you know this is a selection and would any of them take in the Labour Party or indeed in the country to kind of inspire people to to vote for a progressive government? So Stuart, with your Labour advisor, government advisor hat on, you know, thinking in, in those terms, were, did any of these stand out to you as plausible, practical, you know, viable? Yeah, I did. I mean, I'm not just saying this to be obsequious, but you should, people should definitely read this article because it'll, it'll make, you, make your ideas fizz around again, which I think on the left hasn't necessarily been the kind of world we've been in the last few few years. Um, so there's some really good stuff in here. I mean, a few things that are interesting about this. I was really struck by the Australian example Tom talked about, um, about um, uh, getting a new independent head of the civil service in to have a sort of new broom approached to try and challenge some of the sleaze and the sloppiness and corruption um, of Australian. And I think that I think one of the things, one of the challenges Keir Starmer has is he's made such hay out of party gate 
that what's the question is what are you going to do when you come into power that'll show that you're not just going to be the next iteration of governments that everyone despises and doesn't trust with and I think something like a kind of, I was thinking about a version of the Australian idea, something like an off-gov. You know, you have the same the same kind of regulator approach to central government that we have for the utilities. You could have an a, 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 an independent organisation which actually scrutinises and reports on the way that government works regularly, rather than just at the behest of the prime minister, as it seems to be at the moment. And I think that that idea of giving institutional expression to something that politically has been really important to you in opposition is an important part of what it is to run up to an election. And the other thing that comes through a lot of these ideas, like the New Zealand unemployment insurance idea of a, you know, a kind of top-up contributory element, is the way that I think the left gradually is moving much more. Some some left parties have always been in this space, of course, but I think thinking about thinking about welfare and benefits and targeting income on those at risk is really difficult in a cash-strap world, and it's really difficult when the electorates are, don't think they've got enough money to pay the taxes to do it more so maybe than 20 years ago, um, and certainly more than the Blair years had as a problem of their time. And I think one of the ways that the left copes with this is to turn unconditional into contributory benefits. I think that's, that's, a, that's an interesting idea. And I think you know, contributory benefit systems, systems where you pay an amount into almost like an insurance system for yourself, as well as a collective insurance system for the country, they tend to be much more politically robust when times get tough because people see them as their benefits rather than just money going from me to other people who are feckless and don't work hard enough. And I think the idea of bringing that some of the spirit of that insurance principle into welfare is, is a really interesting. And, th and then the third thing quickly is, um, I, I think one of the tricks of opposition is to inherit policy of your government, of the government that you're opposing that you probably criticised and actually keep it and give it a twist, which is what, of course, the Tories did with academies, for example, uh, the specialist schools, particularly, sorry, academies in particular. Um, and I think this levelling up has to be in that category for Keir Starmer. And levelling up has to be something that you inherit, but you can't just try and do the same thing. You can't use the Northern Powerhouse nomenclature and all that. And I think this infrastructure idea, I can't remember which country it was, Tom, where the infrastructure example you had. That was just was, Joe Biden, US. Oh, it was the US. It was a sort of, yeah. I mean, some... T turning turning leveling up not into a bit more cash for Burnley than Wigan and a little bit more cash for the you know the Tees Valley than, than than West Yorkshire, but actually making it about something branded, almost literally branded. You know, mm. I, I think is a, it could be an interesting Labour twist. And in, and infrastructure seems to me making making it specifically about transport and infrastructure, something like that. I think would be a way essentially of continuing the leveling up rhetoric and mission. But giving it a but giving it a labour stamp. So th those I think those are the ways in which some of these examples could be interesting. And if I've got while well, I've got the floor, one last thing. But the environment the environment cases that Tom points out, the Norway electric cars revving up electric cars revolution stuff, and fossil fuels being banned in Colombia. I think one of the things about that is, I think you have to find something that's big. You can't just have another five pounds a week for insulation for your loft. I think if you want to do something on the green agenda, it has to be a big thing, a, a set piece, noteworthy thing, particularly as the Labour Party will be worried about people on its left flank and green flank not not having any faith in Labour. So I think there has to be a signature high hitting policy which does the work for showing that you're serious about a project for five years for whoever's the climate change secretary. Yeah. So, I mean, just to explain briefly that that Norway idea is basically that the Norwegian government cut in half tolls, charges, parking fees, that kind of thing for electric vehicles with the idea that that would kind of push people into to getting an electric vehicle and away from traditional combustion engine 
vehicles. So if there's you know, something in these ideas that is potentially interesting for Labour, what about, I mean, are there some that you think Keir would never go near, Stuart? Yes, I think the wealth tax idea, which I'm personally a fan of, but um, uh, as Tom writes, you know, eloquently in the piece, you know, it's not it's not the detail that's important. It's the principle, because you know, I, I used to work in the Treasury right, for Gordon Brown for six years, which is a very fiscally conservative kind of place, as we're discovering at the moment. The Treasury thinks it's insane that we don't tax assets, which basically like housing, which generate huge, huge advantage for people. There's almost no tax on it at all. We've got a very imperfect tax at the moment through council tax and sales and, and stamp duty. But so there are, there are assets that people in Britain have which generate huge income and therefore generate inequality. They're not taxed. And that's not about punishment. That's just about efficiency. So it seems to me that there is a serious case for a wealth tax. And I don't think Keir Starmer's Labour Party will touch it with a barge pole because they think that it will be totemic of going back to a bad old Labour Party that is unelectable. I actually think the country's moved on that, but I don't think that Keir and the team, yet at least, think that they can be the people who make the running on the argument. So some of those larger tax things, I suspect, will not be anywhere near the top of Labour's manifesto. Tom, in, this list was kind of aspirational in the sense that, again, you were picking out things that you thought were exciting and interesting. But what, what I mean, what did you think was most realistic out of this list for the Labour Party today? Well, I think there's absolutely no reason they couldn't do the pension one, which is essentially if you're if you're somebody who didn't go to university and started work or childcare, it should be said, earlier, and then you're credited, you get your, you get your pension earlier. Whereas at the moment, you know, if you're a guy who's worked hard in a factory and ended up with a bad back, but it's not quite bad enough to get you over the kind of like savagely kind of mean disability assessment, then you're on job seeker allowance, which has like awfully kind of stringent conditions right up till age 66 or 67 I think now so like you know that would work and I think that would signal a a different fairness without without costing much I mean on the picking up a few of Stuart's points there which which are excellent um I mean on the wealth tax I think like when I'm in my more optimistic mood about Keir I think this is the only thing I mean obviously they're cautious everything about them is cautious and like I said they're going for old people who by and large own houses which is where most most wealth is locked up so so all of that points to caution but if you see any of the front bench including Rachel Reeves shadow chancellor and Keir Starmer when they're asked well you know you're not going to put up this national insurance what are you going to do instead they do always say we need to make sure that like you know uh, money from property incomes and dividends and things is taxed fairly rather than everything just going on wages and I think particularly after this conservative leadership election whoever wins and like probably Liz Truss will win and and will cut taxes very deeply indeed Labour was always going to get in needing some revenue raises in its its back pocket it seems to have set itself against any kind of general tax rises which means it's kind of out of options it's gonna so I think although I completely agree with Stuart they won't want to get into taxing wealth they're gonna have to find a way to do it now it might not be called a wealth tax it probably wouldn't be but it might be continuing to dramatically clamp down on big pensions which like the Tories like have already started to do and it's the way the tide's going or it could be a bit of capital gains tax on your first home if it's like worth over a million quid or something like that 
there's different there's different ways ways you could do it but i i really think that the public finances are in such dire straits and about to get worse that they're gonna have to come up with something and uh so anything they haven't ruled out might be um ruled in by by force of uh circumstance so i'm a bit bit livelier on that one um the australian one um is really interesting because anthony albanese if i'm pronouncing the new pm's uh name right there is has essentially run um a keir starmer campaign i think it called it a small target campaign or something which is basically kind of um keep your head down say that the states will do most things the australian states and and, and don't promise much but make a big thing of this public probity so that is very much like starmer and it won it won pretty well in the end so um but the the crucial thing there is obviously finding a way because you know starmer does play with a straight bat and boris johnson was a you know terrible chancellor and all the rest of it and threaten the constitution and so like it's just a way to make that graphic and make that live on after boris johnson has gone and because like you know putting the ministerial code on a statutory basis or whatever is really really not going to be a doorstep thing but saying, you know what, we've got David Attenborough or whoever to be in charge of this now just just might um, might work. So I think that's a really realistic one for them to look at. And then I'm going to just try and tie together a couple of things Stuart said there at the end about really about symbolism, both of the kind of principle, which would go with Keir's buzzword of respect and security, is this idea of solidarity or something in for something out. Um, uh, and also trying to make what Boris Johnson has called levelling up, but we'll find another name later about infrastructure. It's all about kind of finding something graphic that you can use to, so that you can explain it. And I remember before the 2016 presidential election, which certainly didn't call the right result on, but I do remember like people knew in Britain, this is, you know, people knew what, that Trump had some policy, he had a wall and he had various big things he was going to do. Whereas, Hillary Clinton was talking about changing some tax credits for childcare and whatever, and it kind of, unless you're a policy person, you switch off. And so whether it's a new face on public probity or it's like you pay in this insurance stamp and then you know that you're not on a standing on a trapdoor to poverty if there's a if there's a downturn, you've got six months to get yourself a better job or whatever. Or like we're going to have a national recovery fund kind of infrastructure moment. And if you think of the great politicians of the past like, Franklin Roosevelt, who was a sort of centrist, certainly when he started out, like what they were brilliant at was finding these symbolic ways of painting in primary colours the changes that they wanted to make. And like the, the, the things that people remembered may or may or not have been the biggest changes they were making, but creating a new national park, the Tennessee Valley Authority, contributory social security, so no damn politician can unpick it in future because it's yours as of right. A real understanding for that kind of thing, which I think New Labour never really had. And it did a lot of good in a lot of areas, but it never made things that lodged in the imagination, with the exception of things like gay marriage that are a long way from, oh, sorry, civil partnerships, mm. say, uh, a long way from kind of, you know, if, if it's reforms to tax credits or whatever, they, they can and were reinvented continuously before before people the public had understood what they were about so yeah i think symbolism is is what we're needing and, and in a way this is the list of 12 symbols as as much as 12 policy ideas in in the way that stuart or, or me would have thought of them when we were working in whitehall mm. 
Do you agree, Stuart, with that, you know, importance of a symbolic policy in in kind of opposition to that very specific um, mi- you know, micro policy approach you were talking about at the beginning? And if you were advising the Labour leadership today, which one of these do you think would have that, you know, that symbolic clout that could really kind of cut through? Yeah, well, I mean, the first part of your question, I do agree with Tom, I think it's really important. And I mean, it's a very wonky phrase, but something like a contribution revolution for the way that we do our welfare state would be an interesting way. You have to think of a way of branding it, which could imply a whole revolution, but a revolution in something that's traditionally been Labour's baby, but in a direction which is going to change the ethos of it. I think that would be an interesting counterintuitive which some of these policies, like the unemployment insurance idea from New Zealand, would would feed into. I think that's that would be interesting. Um, how would I advise the Labour Party now? I mean, well, they could say, well, you, you work for Gordon Brown and Ed Miliband, they both lost, and so well, thanks very much, we don't want your advice, which would be a fair enough response. But I think that actually Keir Starmer's about to find he's got a very different kind of electoral conundrum than he, than he had it back in back in June. Because I fear, from a Labour point of view, what the Tories are brilliant at doing is moving on to a new prime minister and persuading the country that actually you've got a new government in town. It's, it's like a fresh start. Boris did it brilliantly. I suspect Liz Truss, who I'm, well, you know, is likely but not certain to win it as we speak. Um, Liz Truss will probably not have much trouble in doing something similar. I think she, what's fascinating about the Tory party is that they, they're kind of, they're missing out the entire 10 years of debate about moving away from Thatcherism in this leadership debate. They've just gone straight back to two variants of Thatcherism or or trying to be the most you know, credibly Thatcherite person is the way to winning the hearts of the, of the Tory base. And I think that if Liz Truss wins, as Tom said, I think she'll bring in tax cuts quickly. I think there'll be quite big tax cuts. I think she'll probably bring in spending cuts as well and create a fight about that, particularly on public service, public sector um, costs. And I think that dares Labour Party to, to escape the challenge of being the high tax party at the next election, which is not really a problem that Keir has had up to now, day to day, I don't think. Uh, secondly, I don't think Keir can play the, the, the it's my character versus the PM's character in quite the same way. And if, if Labour spends the next two years trying to say, oh, Liz Truss is just the same as Boris Johnson, I think the country will look at that and go, no, she's not. No, she's not. OK, she was there um, and she has other issues. As from character point of view, but it's not Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson's such a one-off. I don't think so. I think actually, he's going to have to take policy more seriously as a as a defining, uh, and he's but but he's going to have to do, do it within the straitjacket of the Tories having cut taxes and daring Labour to raise them again. Um, and that I think is that's that's the real conundrum he's going to have to wrestle with. And so a couple of these issues, I, I do think the the idea of an off-gov, some sort of office of government. It's, it's not going to change the world, but I think it does show that, you know, he means business about government being a different proposition. Um, so that might be a, a kind of shop window change, change institution that will change things sort of offer, mm-hmm. along with something about changing the way that the welfare system works, maybe. Yeah. So just as we uh, just before we wrap up, a final word to both of you on sort of your 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 closing thoughts of, you know, the. Your closing thoughts of how Labour should play it in the next the next couple of years until until there is indeed again a general election. Do do you think that the party is in a strong position, will be able to put itself in a strong position to to counter the Sunak or the Trust government, the Sunak or the Trust agenda? What's your sort of closing thoughts on that? I mean, I I, I really did. I mean, everything is set for this to be a test of the old theory that you know oppositions don't win 
elections governments lose them. It is a fourth term government because we had a couple of elections kind of a bit quicker than we ordinarily would have done. So I kind of think that um, like we've we've lost track of that. But the public knows that it's been a Conservative government for, for a long time. Boris, I think, got a bit of licence, as Stuart said, you know, brilliantly reinvented himself and, uh, and the party. It's all a, a fresh start. But when we get one of these Margaret Thatcher clones kind of coming in and sort of like just saying, oh, it's all about cuts. And, and you know, the, the ideas they're kicking around are basically tax cuts. Let's like today, there's a story about Liz Trust maybe cutting public sector pay in poorer areas of the country. There's stuff about grammar schools. Like, the, like obviously they can and probably will kind of pivot a little bit after they've got this leadership election out of the way. But really it's like, okay, you've had whatever it will be, 12, 13 years of the Conservatives, 15, maybe by the time of the election, do you want more? And I, and, and I think that will, it's possible that will win, particularly because, you know, it's going to be so shambolic. It's not conserving anything. Liz Truss again today talking about the best thing to do with Nicola Sturgeon is to ignore her. Well, that's not going to work for holding the union together. So, I mean, if you're a sort of small C conservative person who might be a right-wing Labour voter or might be a Liberal Democrat or whatever or might have even been a left-wing Conservative you you, you kind of want a bit of steadiness and a, and a bit of change at this point and that might you know that might be enough it doesn't it doesn't mean that Keir Starmer's not going to um, win but what I would say is that if you want to get in what I'd be saying to him is like if you if you're going to get in you want to have some enthusiasm some sense that like bright young interesting people want to become Labour politicians so that you can renew a little bit in government have some junior ministers who you can promote up the ranks make sure that you don't end up losing a few of those seats that have done quite well for Labour in 2017 in university towns and odd places like Canterbury because you know if Labour starts losing too many votes to Lib Dems and Greens you'll lose some of that and then you get in with a tiny kind of majority and you don't really know what you're about and you can't even rule by diktat or kind of direction because you haven't said what you're about and so it's possible to see Keir Starmer squeaking through but it it, it, it all being very disappointing particularly with the public finance situation and collapsing and, and the Conservatives then getting in. Stuart did you want to give us a, a yeah final final comment? Well, just very quick just very quickly I mean Tom's completely right about the reason to create energy and excitement is because you need ideas on day one it's, it's you can't just go what civil service what have you got in the drawer you, you've got to have energy you get the first hundred days an opportunity but they're also crucial to sort of produce policies that maybe you haven't talked about but you want to do secretly that, you, that you, you've secretly prepared that you want to do on day one day two like Gordon Brown and the Treasury back in 97 with Bank of England and New Deal, all that sort of stuff. So there's, there's that. But also, you've got to give a sense that you're popular, that you've got a following, that there are people out there making the case for you, uh, which aren't just stooges that you put up in front of a camera. You know, the sense that there are people out there who want to touch the hem of your garment is a really important part of being an opposition opposition leader. And I, I, Wilson in 63, before the 64 election, he did a series of speeches around the country where he asked himself a question it's always good because you know the answer if you ask yourself the question about what Britain would look like in 10 years. And this is his way of showing that he was on the his finger on the pulse of modernization. He was forward looking, future looking. He then published a small penguin book with all these different chapters about, you know, what will what will what will the industry of the future look like or what will what's happening to families and, and talking about and going around listening to people talking about the kind of way in which you want the world to change and Britain to change 
is a is a good way of showing energy, but also a, a way of showing that you're listening and that you're and you're calling for people to come and give you ideas. I think all of that is really important part of the preliminary of before you get to a manifesto stage. You know, people always say, oh, he hasn't got enough policy, Keir Starmer, and where's the vision? But but showing that you're asking the right questions is actually a preliminary to both of those things about the kind of country you want to build, you know. Uh, and, and I think. And I think I think that a bit more of that would be good rather than just here's my 10 point plan for housing in in urban areas. You know, go a bit to the how do we want Britain to change and, and talking maybe in slightly more risky but open terms about those things. That's what I'd like to see at this stage. We should just say, sorry, Alan, just before before closing, there are some policies which I deliberately didn't get into in this article. But you know, there are some interesting policies on, say, employment rights about, you know, a, a right to demand rather than request flexible timing and some protections about people who've got very insecure contracts but it's sort of left to Angela Rayner to talk about those things and also they've not been through the kind of spin machine in the way you'd want so you 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 boil it down and sort of say you know uh, uh, a life ready job or something I mean that's terrible but do you know what I mean like 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 things that say here is something that sounds technical but actually is going to change the way that you live it's left as Here's something about stupid protection rights on blah, blah, blah. And, and no one knows what you knows what you're talking about. And um, one thing I really don't think I was exaggerating about is not not many people could name a, a single Labour policy apart from those of us whose job it is to to kind of keep an eye on it. And so um, they've got a few of these things. And so for God's sake, like start talking about those. Start the leader himself talking about them rather than leaving it to other people, because then you're not really taking any risk at all. The Tories are still going to have fun with, with with that policy ideas and claim it's a tax on jobs or whatever they do, if it's Angela Rayner who's saying it, it's Keir Starmer saying it, but there's no upside if no one knows you're doing it. Well, there's certainly lots of food for thought for the entire Labour Party in your peace time. If anybody's listening and fancies having a read of it themselves, then they can check out the, the latest issue of the magazine that's on sale now um, or head to the, the Prospect website. Even they could subscribe uh, if they want to at subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk. Um, thanks so much, Stuart and Tom, for giving us your time today to talk through these ideas. Um, do also check out the Prospect Lives podcast, which is seven stories, seven voices on modern Britain by searching for Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcasts. That's all from us for today. Listen out uh, for the next episode of the Prospect podcast next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.